0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Uh, on the show this week, alleged author Stephanie Meyer managed to spin a whole interminable book series, Twilight, out of the desire of an angsty, glittery vampire to suck the blood of a pouty teenage girl. And a similar story, if somewhat less romantic or arguably more romantic, uh, could probably be told about the desire of government to suck the money out of find contribution schemes. There is a sizable constituency that does seem to think Rishi Sunak is at least as dishy as Robert Pattinson. And if rumours that surfaced late last month are to be believed, he is about to have his way with their virginal DC members. Treasury officials have, according to reports in This Is Money, met with senior industry figures to discuss tapping default strategies to fuel the government's new long-term asset fund. Uh, We'll begin by discussing the prospects of such a strategy and ask whether barriers to DC investment in the liquids, for example, which is part of the purpose of the LTAF, have been overcome. Then, the government has decided that the magic money tree must be watered by the blood of taxpayers, yet more rumours have emerged that a tax raid is planned for the autumn budget. Uh, The government needs money, pension schemes represent big pools of money, ergo pension schemes can provide the government with money, so we will ask how realistic the proposals there are and whether they are sensible. Finally, the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association has decided it's about time we all work out what we mean by ESG and responsible investment. It launched its new responsible investment quality mark to help people recognize the value of an employee benefit that will have long term impact on their lives. We will ask whether this new standard will add clarity or whether it will simply be seen as a nice thing to have. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. I'm joined today by Romy Savova, CEO of Pension B, and by Jonathan Parker, Head of DC and Financial Wellbeing at Reddington. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off then uh, with Treasury plans to tap DC schemes for the long-term asset fund. Uh, The government hopes to have DC schemes investing part of their members' pots in the LTAF, which is a fund specifically designed to boost access to property, infrastructure and other long-term illiquid assets for those who might otherwise be unable to invest in those sectors. It's long been keen to utilise DC and the post-pandemic recovery and the Build Back Better initiative. And Jonathan, I think I'll kick off with you on this one, if that's all right. Is it right to look at this through the lens of this post-pandemic recovery and the Build Back Better thing? I mean, I know the government's been keen to use DC for this purpose for a long time anyway, but to what extent is the LTAF very much tied in with this this government
1: initiative? It, It is tied into this initiative, but you're right, the desire, I think both by government and the industry to make it easier for DC pension schemes to invest in less liquid asset classes has been there for some time. And there have been a number of task force groups. I think the latest is the the productive finance working group, which is run out of the Bank of England, which is, is, again, trying to figure out the right rules and mechanisms to make uh, investment in these types of asset classes is easier for DC schemes. The, there has been a challenge around fund, fund structure, which is why um, the FCA has been consulting on the long-term asset fund. There are still, um, regardless of whether the right fund structure exists, some real challenges that DC schemes will still have in investing in this type of structure. The two main ones for me are cost and charges. Unfortunately, a lot of conversations in D.C. come back to costs and charges and the the appetite in the market to pay a little bit more for um, an investment proposition that gives them access to new opportunities. I think any D.C. scheme that would seek to put money in these longer term, less liquid assets is likely to have to pay a little bit more for their investment costs. And therefore, it may ultimately um, need to pass on those costs to members. And there's a real nervousness amongst trustees in doing that. So that's the one hurdle. And the second hurdle, there do remain some operational challenges um, with investing in in less liquid opportunities. It's absolutely right that all of the various players within the, the ecosystem, the pension providers, platforms, the third party administrators are all set up correctly to make sure that if a member wants to take their money out, then they're able to do so in a reasonable period of time. Really? I'll jump
2: in there for a few a few comments. I think I've been part of quite a few of the discussions in the FinTech space particularly about making pension assets available to invest in fast growing venture capital backed companies. And I have to say, it definitely makes me uncomfortable and we are a fast growing FinTech company because of the issues that Jonathan pointed out. I think that these are serious issues for any pension fund And at the very best, we should see the LTAF as a new type of asset class that becomes available to pension funds to invest in, but it does need to go through exactly the same rigorous selection process as we would have for any other type of asset class, whether that is an emerging market debt allocation um, or whether that is a developed market equity allocation. I think this new type of asset class needs to be considered in exactly the same way as we would consider putting anything else into into customers' pensions. I think the only exception to that is where the customers themselves have asked for these types of allocations and for these types of exposures. And certainly at Pension B, we've had a lot of experience with customers getting in touch and asking about certain things being in their pensions. That's one of the reasons why we created the fossil fuel free plan to exclude major fossil fuel producers. And so I think With customer demand, I think the assessment process could perhaps be slightly different. Customers can have different objectives to always looking to optimize the asset class allocation and return profile of a pension fund. But unless we see that sort of appetite coming on the demand side, we have to treat this asset class as we would any other asset class that's available for pension funds.
0: Sure thing. And Jonathan, if I can come back to you um, on this. Obviously, Besides these newer asset classes, there's the long-term push for illiquid, in particular, infrastructure investments. Daily dealings, as mentioned, always been a bit of a problem with trying to tap DC for those purposes. Stephen Budge of LCP told us that that that's a platform level issue rather than a fund specific issue. He said the platform Mm -hmm. must be able to deal with non-daily dealt funds before the LTAF can be considered. He mentioned they have clients using that, that method. Is that method widely available? Is it widely understood? Because my, my impression was always that actually daily dealing was much harder to solve than just a, a few tweaks here and there. Has the problem been solved or is it likely to be by the time the LDAF properly
1: launches? So it, it has been solved. In a, So a small number of platforms do have funds available on them that are not daily dealt. Now, we've just lived through 18 months of, um, and are still living through 18 months of very challenging circumstances. But during that period, a lot of property funds suspended and effectively turned from what was a liquid asset class on the surface to an illiquid one almost overnight. And the platforms have dealt with that reasonably well. They selected alternative homes for members' ongoing contributions to go into, And as and when the property funds have gradually reopened, they've put that money back into that particular asset class. So it it is solvable. I'm not saying it's not without its challenges. And with all of these types of investment opportunities, in addition to points that Romy made around making sure that it, it does stack up from an investment perspective, that's first and foremost what you need to do. But aside from that, you always need to communicate with members and tell them that if they can't get their money out for a particular reason, then that they're aware of that. And they know that they need to give one month, three months, six months worth of notice before getting their hands on their money. Now, there are certain points, retirement, for example, when that can become a little bit of a challenge. But provided that's been communicated in advance, I think actually operationally this can be handled by most platforms.
2: I think it's very tough to communicate this in advance, particularly in auto-enrollment products, because they require the customer, the member, um, in this instance, to do absolutely nothing um, and to not engage in communication in any way. I think the key difference between the property fund suspensions and potential automatic enrollment suspensions is that many individuals have chosen specifically to invest in property funds, whereas that would not be the case if we are putting illiquid investments into default plans. And so if there is a chance of transfers out being stopped or withdrawals being slower w- when customers really need their money, then I do think that the industry needs to be prepared for some serious consumer backlash because consumers would rightly have an expectation of daily dealing in this day and age.
1: We'll
0: move on from that topic then to the rumoured tax raid. The Treasur- uh, the Telegraph sorry, reported last month that the Treasury officials are supposedly drawing up a list of potential reforms to the way in which pension contributions are taxed, the aim being to raise money uh, for the heightened public spending during the coronavirus pandemic. The Telegraph quoted well-placed Whitehall sources, who are common amongst most news coverage these days. Nobody ever figures out who they are, but nevertheless, everybody has one. Um, They said they've concocted three different reform proposals, the first being a reduction in the lifetime allowance from a little more than a £1 million to 800000 or £900,000, a flat rate tax proposal has also been made, uh, according to the Telegraph report, as well as uh, a new tax on employer contributions. We, I think, did ask them to comment on this. They said that they didn't speculate on tax rumours on the basis that things should never be believed until they've been officially denied. Their refusal to deny it might actually mean that it doesn't happen. I think that's how that works. In any case, Jonathan, I think I'll begin with you uh, on this one again, if, if that's all right the lifetime allowance has been changed i don't know how many times in the last sort of few years mm. is a further change welcome is a further change
1: going to do what is required of it the lifetime allowance is relatively e- easy to change that's why it's, it seems to be a um a very kind of popular choice by politicians where they're seeking to kind of curb t- to some extent the amount of tax relief that is afforded to obviously generally the much you know better off savers um, within the country so tax relief in in general it does cost the treasury a a lot of money it's not generally very well understood or appreciated by savers which is why i think almost you know every budget that i've looked at and sat through over the last 20 years has always had fevered speculation in advance of it around Some sort of raid on uh, current tax reliefs or more fundamental changes to the system of um, pensions tax relief in in general. I personally, this is a personal view, not a ranging view, would be in in favour of making some further changes. Actually, if you look at the number of tax reliefs and benefits that occupational pension schemes and workplace pension schemes get in general, they are very, very generous. Get tax relief on the on the way in tax-free growth as you're going through, and then often, you know, at least a 25% tax-free lump sum at the end. If you compare that to many other pension systems around the world, it stacks up very, very well. And any sm- small curbs at the top end, I think would be fine. Robbie, do you have a view on, on this?
2: Yes. I mean, I think changes to the LTA in particular are probably appealing because they're hard for many people to notice. So they're appealing to the government because they can kind of sneak it under the carpet and they can have an impact on the public finances. However, there must come a time when that is no longer an option, when the lifetime allowance is simply too low. And of course, we already have very sensible limits now on annual contribution amounts that can go into pensions. And so I view that type of reduction as really being more of a political tool at this stage, because we are penalizing people whose pensions are growing, and I can't understand why that would be a good thing from a social perspective. In terms of tax relief, we have been vocal proponents of a single flat rate of tax relief, simply because the current system doesn't work well consistently for anyone. And we have looked at higher and additional rate taxpayers in particular, who leave a lot of money on the table So when you have to claim the additional part of your tax relief directly from HMRC, it involves you completing your self-assessment and effectively, proactively asking for that money back from HMRC. And a lot of people simply don't do it. They're not aware that they have to do it. They pay most of their taxes through PAYE. And so that money is simply left with Treasury and they're not actually benefiting from it. It would be much simpler if the rate of tax relief that goes directly into your pension was simply a little bit higher and consistent for all, because that would also address the problem of lower earners who are not receiving any tax relief when they are paying into their pensions. And so you can see the problems around the current system operating at the very highest end of earning potential but also at the lowest end of earning potential and so you have to really ask is this a fair system that works for people going forward and I think the answer is clearly no it is complicated to change it but eventually the government will have to bite that bullet as people have been telling them for many 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 years.
0: Excellent well in which case we'll move on then to the final topic which is the PLSA's new uh, responsible investment uh, quality markets a new set of standards uh, the goal of which is to establish industry best practice to help other schemes uh, attempt to emulate that, and it will cover uh, saver communication and interests uh, governance and stewardship, <clears throat> investment strategy and risk management. Uh, its development builds on the experience and success of the pension quality mark, uh, the accreditation for defined contribution workplace savings plans developed in two thousand and nine by the PLSA. Romney, I'll, I'll kick off with you on this one, if that's all right. Responsible investment, there are all manner of bespoke standards and metrics to be used, aren't there already? Uh, This is another one. Is it the fact that the PLSA doing it going to help people get a clearer sense or a standardized sense, which is actually comparable with other schemes' behaviors, or is it just another metric to take account of, which will be nice to have if you can get it?
2: Well, I think that the benefit is not necessarily going to be to the consumer. I think that in the past, these types of accreditations have had fairly low recognition amongst the public. I've certainly never heard of a consumer asking to see one of these types of kite marks. And so I think unless it is accompanied by a very prominent PR strategy or a way to link the kite mark directly to a trusted and well-known consumer organization, I think that the impact on individual consumers could probably be quite limited. However, I think there is, of course, value for pension schemes in having the ability to compare and benchmark themselves against their peers and to help trustees make decisions relative to their peer group. And so from that standpoint, I think as a tool to encourage best practice within ESG, it could be effective. But I'm a bit skeptical as to whether the take up from consumers in particular will be very, very high.
0: And Jonathan, do you do you have a view on this? I mean, I think the PLSA, you know, whenever it polls its members, says or well, they they find that their members are obviously very concerned about climate change. They are very concerned about mm-hmm. ESG. Mind you, nowadays I think it would be more newsworthy if you got a poll where people said they didn't really care. Despite this Stated concern, though, as Romy says, there's not always a connect between that and action being taken or actual scrutiny by members. Do you think that that will change with something like a responsible investment quality, Mark?
1: So I I think that having having a best practice framework can help certain trustees and equally can give them evidence that they can pass on to their members that their scheme is being managed to a, um, you know, in, in a really, really good way. So, you know, Reddington's pension scheme, for for example, has the the pension quality mark assessment. So this is a, it's another kind of kite mark that's run by the PLSA to sort of demonstrate that your pension scheme as a whole is being run in a good way. And what we found is that it has ignited some interest from employees at Reddington to learn a little bit more about their pension scheme and also ask the, the governance committee why is our scheme good enough to have achieved this particular quality mark so I think it, that, that they can have an impact it does take a you know, a committed set of trustees and a committed employer to want to take a particular scheme through this process because they, they are quite involved actually in looking through the, the criteria that PLSA have, have come up with it certainly feels like the right sort of areas to be focused on. But it's, it's an additional kind of set of governance activities that trustees or employers will need to go through over and above an ever-growing list of sort of regulatory must-do requirements as well. Like, you know, TCFD, for example, is, is the big one that a lot of our clients are working on a, at the moment. Definitely. I think it's a good job most people have moved to paperless
0: now. Otherwise, trustees would be responsible for felling half the Amazon every year with all of these uh, regulatory <laughs> requirements they have to meet. Fantastic. In which case, I think that brings us to the close of the substantive part of the programme. There is, however, always a pensions angle. I should say we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. So at the time of recording, it is officially still coming home. At the time of going to air, it might not be, but we'll be optimistic and say that it is. And
1: Jonathan, I think you had a a Euros and football related pensions angle for us today. I did. Very tenuous, so I I apologise in in advance on this one. So in in, in the dim and distant past, I uh, worked with an organisation called the Players Football Association, the PFA, which effectively is the union for football players. And they used their, you know, as unions do, their collective bargaining power to negotiate good good pension arrangements for for the players who were part of, of that union. Um, Now, this is going back 20 years um, or so, Um, but certainly at the time, the PFA got quite heavily involved in, you know, selecting, you know, what a good pension arrangement would be um, for the football players. Often a lot of these players were were self-employed. So often the players were not particularly knowledgeable about financial matters. Um, So the PFA used to support them in in choosing a pension fund, negotiating good terms. Um, And I'm sure the likes of Raheem Sterling will be Putting a chunk of his winner's bonus into his um, into his SIP. There yeah. you go. This just proves pensions are for everyone. Even if
0: you earn three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week, you are not <laughs> immune to the needs of pension schemes and all the rules therein. Fantastic. That brings us to the end of the program. Then thank you both to Rami and to Jonathan for joining us. We will, as ever, be back in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then.